You're listening to Theology and Apologetics with Thomas Fretwell, bringing theology to life. So this is our third session in Revelation chapter 19. We will finish this chapter this week. In reality, I felt no need to rush through this chapter. It is the culmination of, you could say, the entire Bible. All of the Bible has been pointing towards this event, prophesying about it, anticipating it. All of history has been working towards this event under God's sovereign hand. His people have been longing for it, his people have been waiting for it, expecting it, dying for it, all throughout the years, and we are going to see it come to its conclusion. This is the event to end all events, you could say. Now, let me just recap last week, because again, as we jump straight into the second coming, I'm very aware that it can sound a little unusual if you've never heard this sort of thing before, talking about the second coming of Jesus Christ. Last week, I spent a lot of time grounding our belief in the second coming, showing why it is totally reasonable to hold a belief in the second coming of Jesus Christ, even in an age that is so secular like ours. And one of the easiest ways to do this is by looking at the first coming, and the anticipation, the prophecies, the predictions that the Lord made about the first coming of Jesus Christ. So we read this verse, Revelation 19, verse 10. It ends with this wonderful phrase, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. This is saying that the witness of Jesus Christ is really what prophecy is all about. He is the centerpiece of the Bible. He is the centerpiece of God's plan. And this is where it all points to, the epicenter, you might say. So what I want to do now is, again, just quickly recap those prophecies that we looked at last week to ground our belief before we read the amazing passage we're about to read. What is it that the Bible tells us about Jesus Christ that gives us confidence what I'm going to study this morning in Revelation 19 can also be believed to be true? Now, of course, the authority of the word is its own referent, and that is fine. We don't actually need anything more, but it can actually help us understand what that means more as we look at how it's fulfilled through history. The Bible, the Old Testament particularly, was written many years before Jesus ever existed, at least 400, 500 years, and we actually have physical copies going back at least 200 years before Jesus existed, so we can prove this. The world had never heard the story of Jesus. There was no Christmas stories, there was no carol services. No no one knew all the things that we know about Jesus just by tradition. So remember that as we go through these very briefly. This is recapping what we did last week, but I wanted to ground it again for you. Remember, all of these, 400 years at least before Jesus ever existed. The Messiah was said to be born in Bethlehem. He was said to be a descendant of Abraham and one to whom all the nations would receive a blessing. He was to be a descendant of King David and he was specifically to come from the tribe of Judah. Now notice, these are very specific prophecies. They detail his family lineage, his ethnicity. These are specific. Psalm 78 tells us that this Messiah would also teach in parables. Everyone knows that Jesus taught in parables. He's probably the most famous parable teller in the whole world today. Isaiah 61 tells us that he would be known for preaching the good news to the afflicted. He would be known for performing signs of healing. Psalm 118 tells us that he was to be rejected by the nation of Israel. Isaiah 53 tells us that he was to bear the sins of another and suffer in their place, the innocent for the guilty. Isaiah 53 also tells us that this Messiah would be killed. 
Zechariah 12 tells us that this death would involve having his hands and his feet pierced. Exodus 12 tells us that this would happen on the day of Passover. Psalm 16 tells us that even though he was prophesied to die, he would live again. Isaiah 42 tells us that he would be accepted by all the Gentile nations. He is pretty much the only Jewish rabbi that all the Gentile nations worship today. There's no other way that can be fulfilled. We are even given a timetable for all of these events. Remember in Daniel 9, it was said that this Messiah, who fulfilled all of those requirements, had to come to this earth by the year 33 AD. He would come and die, in fact, by the year 33 AD, and shortly after that, the Jewish temple would be destroyed, which happened in 70 AD. These are just a few of the specific requirements that the Bible said the Messiah must fulfill hundreds of years before Jesus ever existed. You look at the history. Jesus Christ is the only person, only person who could fulfill all of those requirements, who did fulfill them. No one else did, and no one else ever can now because the time has passed. We are past 33 AD. Therefore, if you're ever wondering which religion is true, if you're ever wondering why we don't have to look to Jehovah's Witnesses, to Mormonism, to Islam... This is why. The requirements and the time have passed. All of those other religions started post. Obviously, some didn't, but the vast majority of them started after this time. Therefore, we know that they could not be the saviour. They did not fulfil the requirements that God laid down. Jesus Christ is the only candidate to fulfil all of these things. We look back through history. They were predicted to happen hundreds of years in advance, and they did happen exactly as the Bible foretold. And it is the same prophets that made those predictions of his first coming that give us the predictions about his second coming. Therefore, it's a good argument, a logical, evidential argument that we can have a good reason to believe what we learn and teach, uh, understand about his second coming will be fulfilled in the same manner as his first, exactly as written. And we can prove that, and I believe that gives you good grounds for justifying a belief in the second coming, as amazing as it might sound, as strange as it's going to sound to us. The first coming was equally as strange to those of, the, of his day, yet it happened because God said it would. So let's pick it up in verse 11 and 12. Again, we recap this last week, but for context, I kind of left you hanging in the middle of a sentence last week. So it says in verse, And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems in his name written on him, which no one knows except himself. Now remember the context to this event. The scene is quite awe-inspiring. In the previous chapters, we've seen the destruction of the city of Babylon, that final world government that is ruling the world at this time, that the Antichrist is ruling, is persecuting the believers, trying to destroy the Jewish nation, and he has this conglomerate on the world, controlling the economics of the world, and all these sorts of things. We've been studying this in previous weeks. But now, that is destroyed. The armies of Antichrist are gathering on the earth for their final showdown, trying to destroy the Jewish people, utterly hell-bent on removing any vestige of Christ from this earth. That includes his people and anyone who bears testimony or witness to Jesus Christ who may still be alive at this time. And it seems that almost he is going to win. It's almost like right at the last moment, like this is always how it's done in the movies, isn't it? This is kind of where that comes from. At the last moment, when goods is so small, it seems like it's about to go dark, 
at that last moment we read what we just read, the heaven is opened and we see the king coming on his white horse. The faithful, true and righteous judge enters the battle. The one who has many crowns, emphasizing that he has all the kingly authority in all the earth, in all the realms. This is not the same as when he wore that crown of thorns the first time he was here that was put on his head as a symbol to mock his royal authority and he allowed man to do that for a time. But that time is now over and he rides now as a victor, as a conquering king and he has many crowns on his head. And then let's look at verse 13. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood and his name is called the Word of God. This is an impressive scene that we have here. This is a scene of a warrior king. It is a battle scene. We have already seen how the return of Christ, some people call it the Battle of Armageddon, it consists of multiple events. So each different time we read it, we actually get a slightly different perspective on the whole picture. And you have to use the whole Bible to track it through. It's quite complex. We've done some of that as we've gone, gone through this book. But what we see here is the king coming and his robes are stained in blood. Now this is not his blood. Again, just like the crown, he allowed man to put the crown on his head to mock him earlier. The time of God shedding his own blood is already past. He did that 2,000 years ago. He poured out his own blood for us on the cross so that we can be saved. This time, he is not going to allow that to happen again. That will never happen again. That has been done. This time, it is those who refuse, who stand against him, the enemies of Christ, whose blood is on his garments. This is what comes from what we call the winepress of the wrath of God. We've spoken of this many times. In Revelation 14, 20, it was first introduced to us. It says, And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and the blood came out from the winepress up to the horses' bridles for a distance of 200 miles. It's a serious event. When we talked of the second coming, I gave you the theory that the second coming first happens in a place called Edom. I read from Isaiah 63. Let me read it to you again. It specifically answers the question of whose blood this is on his garments. Isaiah says, Who is this who comes from Edom with garments of glowing colors from Bozrah? If you remember, Edom was the place where the remaining Jewish people at this time are hiding out and the Antichrist is trying to destroy them. This is all events that are happening right at this very final period of history. This is when I believe the heavens will open. This is when the conquering king comes back and we see him tread the winepress of the wrath of God. It says, This one who is majestic in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength, it is I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red and your garments like the one who treads in the winepress? I have trodden the wine trough alone, and from the peoples there was no man with me. I trod them in my anger, trampled them in my wrath, and their lifeblood is sprinkled on my garments and stained my raiment. This is explaining what we're reading about in Revelation 19, and it's serious. We might get a little offended by reading this sort of thing, but you have to remember what we are seeing here is the absolute pinnacle of evil that has been allowed to reign on this earth. Probably things that we can't even imagine in this age, and you can look around and find some pretty heinous acts going on right now. The Lord is finally saying, no, that's enough. And when he comes, people still resist him, even in that sort of appearance, and they are the ones who are destroyed. And it says, look at the end, his name is called the Word of God. I love that. It's simple, it's direct, it's an explicit declaration about exactly who this conquering coming king is. And this title, this name, is about as theologically rich as you can get. We should be familiar with this name, New Testament readers. John 1, in the beginning was the Word, 
The word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And then verse 14, and the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. The word of God speaks of God incarnate. It also reminds us that he is the one that brought all things into existence. It is a reminder of why he is the only one that has the authority right now to reclaim the earth. And it's also why I believe he chooses to have this name emphasized in the text that we read in Revelation 19. Psalm 33, verse 6, it says, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their host. If you read Genesis 1 and 2, the creation narratives, you'll find that God speaks the very universe into existence. He spoke it into existence. That is the power of his word. That's why this name is emphasized. Now think of this. When we reject God, you look around, our culture. I've heard many arguments against the existence of God. Watched many intelligent people in the human sense sitting there giving their reasons why they don't believe in God. They reject him also as the word of God without realizing they are the very product of that word themselves. You can see why it says the Lord sits in the heavens and laughs at such futility. But at this time, it's kind of insane. That just shows you the proud arrogance of man. We all know it. It's probably come out of our own mouths at some point in our lives. We all tend to lean that way, but for the grace of God. But here, we see in this period of history, evil has had its final say, the arrogance of man, the sin, the deceptive nature of the Antichrist. We see it in his purest form. Verse 14. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. Now we know that as the Lord of hosts, he will come with all the power of heaven. We learn from other scriptures that all the angels will accompany him at this great event. Yet the phrasing in this text, I believe, is not supposed to emphasize the angels. The phrasing here is actually emphasizing a different group that come with him. Contextually, I believe, it just comes from two or three verses previously of the same chapter. Verses 7 and 8, look at them. Let us rejoice and be glad. Give glory to him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. And it was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Almost an identical phrase, except for the one says white, one says bright. It's actually the same word. They both mean the same thing in Greek there. This, I believe, is what it's emphasizing here. That the, who is the bride of Christ? We studied this when we looked at the marriage supper of the Lamb. The bride of Christ is the one coming back. The text literally says it here. We spoke about these different views of when the church gets taken to heaven. This is a very strong argument for the pre-tribulation rapture right here. Because we know the resurrection in a post-tribulational sense won't happen at this point. But we also see the text makes it very clear that this group of people accompanying Christ at his second coming with him are already given their righteous robes. They are the bride of Christ. It's a strong argument here. The head and the body now coming back together as a unified army. No more divisions like we see in the church in this earth. No more scandals, no more hurt, no more people struggling, no more persecution. At this moment, we ride behind the Lord, the head, the body, unified as one. On this earth, the church has often been the ones who were called to lay down this earth, to deny this world. For much of its history, it's lived in poverty and persecution, people who gave up everything to follow the Lord, and now they're the ones who get to follow the Lord back in glory. That is a privilege. 
verse 15. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he tread, treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. A sword from his mouth. Now this is, of course, I don't believe a literal sword from his mouth. It is clearly indicating that the implement with which he judges is the Word of God. This is why he also had that name, the Word of God, as he comes back. Remember, this is exactly what Jesus told us would be the situation. John 12, verse 48. He who rejects me and does not receive my sayings has one who judges him. The word I spoke is what will judge him on the last day. We're seeing that take place quite literally here. The word of God is powerful. The word of God is awesome. It is mighty to judge. For the word, someone prayed this earlier, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the hearts. This is why he's the only true and righteous judge, because he has that ability. And if you remember the picture that we're given in the first chapter of Revelation, you see that he also has that two-edged sword coming out of his mouth. It is the word of God. And it says back in Revelation, so that with it he may strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. The nations will be defeated. This is referring to those nations at this time who are standing against him. They will be judged by the word of God at this time. He will rule. No longer will the usurpers take dominion of the earth and use it for evil. He will put an end to all of that. It says he will rule with a rod of iron. Now, in case we think this is a very harsh picture, many of us, probably in our generation, we almost think of like a small metal pole, that someone like a street fight type of thing. That is not the picture here. The word is referring to a scepter or a staff. It's a kingly image that we see here. And this is one that we understand. In fact, throughout all of history, kings have used scepters and staffs as a symbol of their authority and sovereignty to whoever is holding it. You can go back through all history. This is Darius the Great the Persian Empire, and we've studied him as we go through. That's his, he's holding a scepter, the Code of Hammurabi. You can see the scepter in the hand there of the king. And of course, we can see the, the, the crown jewels there. That is a royal scepter like we see. The scepter that Jesus comes back with is made of iron. That is supposed to emphasize that it is extremely strong, not a flimsy thing made of a soft metal like gold. It is iron that we have here. This is what is going on here. He will rule by that scepter. What it means is he has the authority and the power to rule righteously, and his sovereignty is undisputed at this time. It will be very shortly once he deals with this final enemy. And I believe the idea of a scepter, ruling with a scepter, actually fulfills some ancient prophecies in the Bible too. A cryptic prophecy from the book of Numbers, chapter 24, Balaam. You remember that story? Very unusual story. The oracle of Balaam, the son of Beor, and the oracle of the man whose eye is opened, the oracle of him who hears the words of God and knows the knowledge of the Most High, who sees the vision of the Almighty, falling down yet having his eyes uncovered. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come forth from Jacob, and a scepter shall rise from Israel. One from Jacob will have dominion and will destroy the remnant of the city. Jesus Christ is the scepter that rose out of Jacob, he was coming back to destroy, in many ways, those who are standing against him at this time. Let's go back to that verse. 
It says he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. As I've mentioned before, that is what is happening at this second coming. Verse 16, and on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This whole scene is intensely regal. Think about it. The white horse. It's a king's horse. It's a leader's horse. A general's horse. The many crowns, the scepter, the robe, and finally, the name and the title here, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is drawn from the Old Testament, but the language here is emphasizing the absolute nature of it. You could translate it, the supreme king among all kings, the supreme lord amongst all lords. The sovereign of all sovereigns, riding into battle to save his people, to take back his kingdom and usher in times of peace, prosperity, and blessing. That's the story of the Bible. It really is the culmination of everything that people are longing for, all the fulfillment of those promises that Jesus said one day will happen. And yet, as we know, as we read, as we see around in our world today, there are still many who fiercely oppose such an idea. And that is because they hate Jesus Christ. The gods, the, Jesus said, they will hate me and they'll hate you also. We may couch it up in intellectual arguments, we may couch it in a sort of fairness and equality, as we call it, but the reality is... They oppose Jesus Christ. And you see that here. They are opposing the return of the king. And this is, even C.S. Lewis got this so well. He pictured this so well in his famous Narnia books. The idea that he had, most people were following the white witch. She had all the biggest army. All the people were following her. She had her control. But there were a few who still believed in the prophecies that Aslan would come. And they clung to those prophecies. And then one day Aslan does come. And first he has to die for the sins of another, and then he comes back to life, and then right at the final part, you see him come back at the battle. Almost when the battle's lost, he comes back. C.S. Lewis obviously was a Christian. He was making an analogy from the Bible here. That's what he was doing, but he does that very well. Verse 17, Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly in mid-heaven, Come, assemble for the great supper of God so that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of commanders, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and those who sit on them, and the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves, small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. So John here sees another angel now, and we see the results of this final battle. It talks about birds being assembled for supper. And the supper is the same word used previously in this chapter to speak of the marriage supper of the Lamb, creating a deliberate contrast, I believe, between these two events. The marriage supper of the Lamb is the one you want, you want to get your invite for. It's be the greatest event in history. This supper is one you do not want to attend. <laughs> you will simply be there as prey. This imagery of birds and battle is actually taken from the Old Testament. The cursings from Deuteronomy 28 says this, your carcasses will be food to the birds and the sky and to the beasts of the earth, and there will be no one to frighten them away. Jesus made a very similar argument, speaking of this final time, Matthew 24, 27. Just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. That's the point he's getting out there. And notice it, all these different peoples, the kings, the flesh of kings, commanders, mighty men, soldiers, all men, doesn't matter if you're rich, doesn't matter if you're poor, doesn't matter on your status, doesn't matter on whatever you think you may have got in this earth. If at this point you're standing against Jesus Christ, this is your supper, unfortunately. 
These are the earth dwellers in Revelation. These are the ones who have followed the beast, who have taken his mark, who have sworn allegiance to him, who stand against everything that Christ stands for and who have been persecuting his people throughout this time. They are known by their rejection and hatred of God, so much so that they would even follow the beast into battle against this glorious king. And notice here the overuse almost in this text of the word flesh. Five times just in one verse. Flesh of kings, flesh of commanders, flesh of mighty men. I find that interesting because all through the New Testament, you will see writers use the term flesh as a way to describe our sinful nature. The lusts of the flesh. Paul said, put on the Lord Jesus Christ, make no provision for the flesh in regard to these things. Again and again, there's more scriptures than I could list. Yet what we see here is for those who never do that, who never put on the Lord Jesus Christ, who don't have those, fine, those robes of righteousness put on them by the grace of God, here we see in very literal terms what the final leading of the flesh, where it will take them at this time. The human race has often walked in enmity against God, living after the lust of the flesh, and now God has allowed that for a time because his gospel has been going out, people have been getting saved every single day, but at this moment, that time is definitely at an end. Verse 19, And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the throne, who sat, sorry, on the horse and against his army. Now think about this verse. I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse. This is the horse that has just burst out of the heavens with the armies of heavens following behind him. And this shows you something here. It's the most unbelievable statement in the Bible, really, that man would actually think they can take up arms against a king like this. But they share, remember, this time is characterized by deception, by lying wonders, by you have a man leading the world at this point who is the pinnacle and epitome of proud and arrogance, and he is powerful in his own right in a human sense, or in an angelic sense even, but he has still deceived the world into thinking that they can stop this triumphant king coming. All of these unbelievers actually gather together to try and stop the coming king. They are still in total darkness about their true place, about their identity, who they are, and the power that they have. Remember, God's word is responsible for holding the universe together. He spoke it into existence, yet they're there here still, his creation standing against him, telling him that the earth is not his, it is theirs. They have believed the lies of the enemy, and these are lies that set itself up against the word of God. We're seeing it in its ultimate conclusion here, but you can see it around the world today in many ways. You go through every cultural issue that we have in society. It's always against man's opinion or God's word. Think about it. I'm not going to list them. You all know them, whether it's lifestyles, things that you do, everything, all of these things. These are not cultural issues. These are biblical issues. At some point, they always come back to this issue. What has God said? What does man say? Man rejects what God says, puts their own word in it. That is the attitude that leads to what we're getting here. That is why when Jesus comes back, he has the word of God written as his name and his title, remembering, reminding people that it is his very word that gives us the air we breathe. And yet most men use it to profane his name. God has had enough of that at this point, and it will not happen. Verse 20, And the beast was seized, and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. 
These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire which burns with brimstone, and the rest were killed with the sword which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. So we see these two characters, the false prophet and the beast, who we've studied many weeks previously. For a lot of, they are responsible for so much of the evil during this final period of history. They will be the first to be thrown into the eternal judgment, which is fitting, really, for them. And then it says the rest will be dealt with after that. Unfortunately, these are the humans who have followed them. I remind you at this point that God never made the lake of fire for humans. It was never his intention. But, unfortunately, people chose to follow the beast and thus consign themselves to the same fate as them. Now, this whole scene is, in fact, a royal military victory scene, as we've spoken of. Think of all those people throughout all the ages of history, who have been following the Lord in all the ages, who have petitioned his return. We saw the martyrs under the throne earlier on in this book, desperately crying out, when will you avenge our blood? When will you come, Lord? All of those that this day, the hope of the coming of the Lord, of the coming of his kingdom, gave them the strength to endure terrible trials, to endure persecution, to accomplish great works in the name of God, to deny self, to deny the thing that this world offers, so that one day they would have a place in his kingdom. It is finally here in this text. I want you to notice something else. Although I'm talking about battle, we've talked about blood, about armies, about death, notice one thing. The Lord's army have no weapons, no armor. In fact, they don't even fight, if you actually follow the text closely. It says that the Lord himself treads the winepress alone. The rest are there simply as escorts to this great king. All they have are their robes of righteousness, those fine, white, and clean robes. And that is all they need. And this is, this is basically telling you all you need is salvation. You're not going to fight anything. You just need to be saved by the grace of God to be given those wedding garments, those robes of righteousness, and thus you will come back with him. But he is the one who does the battle. But, having said that, in reality, if you read the text carefully, not even the Lord has an actual weapon. <laughs> the Lord needs no weapons forged by man, as we think of weapons. On the earth, they'll probably be gathering their weapons. The Lord has no weapons. The only offensive weapon mentioned in this entire scene, in fact, throughout the whole campaign of Armageddon, is the sword that comes out of his mouth, which we've already said is what? The word of God. It is his word. Now think about this. When he comes to reclaim the earth, to set up his kingdom, to vanquish the evil one and all who stand with him, and to inaugurate that time of peace and blessing, all he comes with, all he needs is his word and his name. Those two things. That's why it's emphasized. His word and his name. And they said, King of kings and Lord of lords. He needs nothing else. In those two things are all the power, authority, and strength in the universe and more. They are the highest authority. They are the most righteous precepts. And that is what he will rule with. And that is why he comes back with it. It is the name which is above every name, and it is the name at which every knee will bow. It is the name to which every tongue will confess one day that he is Lord of Lords. And yet we also read in the Psalms that he has magnified his word above all his name, Psalm 138. Because his word created everything. He is the word of God. The word became incarnate. This is the one we've seen riding on this horse now. That is it. His word and his name 
That is all he needs. And I remind you again, every cultural battle, every issue you see in this world today is about his word and about his name. Ask yourself today, what do we think of his name and what do we think of his word? Do we acknowledge the power it has and do we acknowledge the person who speaks it forth into this world? He is the one that has the white horse, the victor's horse, the conquering king's horse. He is the one that has the armies of heaven, the angelic host and the redeemed church following him. He is the one that has the many crowns. He is the one that has the royal robes. He is the one that comes with the kingly scepter. He is the one that has all the titles, all the authority, and the name King of Kings written on his thigh. And on earth, we're about to say it in a nation, we say long live the king, indicating that we hope the king has a long life. Of this king, we don't have need for such an epithet. But rather we would agree with the Apostle Paul, who says now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honour, glory forever and ever. Amen. You've been listening to Theology and Apologetics. This podcast is supported by your generous donations. To help us continue to bring you great content, please visit our Patreon site at patreon.com slash theologyandapologetics. If you've been blessed by this podcast, please leave us a review and remember to connect with us on social media. For more resources, please go to theologyandapologetics.com. Thanks for listening.